As we open the word this morning, this next section is tightly connected to the prior one. So for those of you who maybe weren't able to be here last week, we did record the sermon on the website, so you can listen to it on there. Highly recommend it for context sake. But in short, Jesus had been condemning his detractors for being unresponsive for the good, to the good news that he was heralding. Because John called for mourning over sin, and the people would not do it. And Jesus called for rejoicing, for the promised Savior of the world had finally come. And people wouldn't rejoice either. But they were stubborn and silent, like contrarian children. And with that as the backdrop, he turns his attention to the cities where he has most been rejected. Sadly, the the cities where Jesus has spent most of his time. As we pick up in verse 20, it says, He began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes." But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Jesus says this because these cities did the one thing that made no sense to do. They ignored Jesus. Because if if you really hear the message of the gospel, if you understand what the gospel, the good news of Jesus' life and death and resurrection is, there's only two logical conclusions, love and adoration or hatred. But these guys chose indifference. Indifference to someone who goes to the cross for you makes no sense. This isn't a small thing to ignore. But regretfully, it's what people have done with God and his prophets over the centuries. Uh, In Luke 17, Jesus said that the people were just going about daily life, ignoring the warnings of Noah until he entered into the ark. And then it was too late. And so, too, people continue to live their life ignoring the message of the cross, ignoring the message of the gospel, uh, going about their daily life, walking past this church, you know, as if it's just another bar in town. And so, too, until the Son of Man returns, and then it will also be too late. And the same was pronounced on the city where Jesus was even living in at the time, in verse 23, where he said, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Sodom being the great city of sin in the Old Testament. And even that city will do better than a city Jesus was actually living in? Well, how's that possible? Why is it that these cities have it so much worse than other cities in Scripture? Well, it's because these cities had received a more clear revelation of who Jesus was than anywhere else in history 
Jesus did not live in South Amboy, New Jersey. <laughs> he did not live in or in the in in Sodom, in Tyre, in Sidon, but he did live in Capernaum. And he spent lots of time in Chorazin and Bethsaida doing miracles there. And yet they still rejected him. Now, for sake of comparison, let's consider another city. What about Samaria, for instance? A non-Jewish town where one woman who encountered Jesus ran into the city to tell people her testimony and the whole city repented and turned to Jesus. What a remarkable difference between the two. Those are radically different responses and receptions to Jesus. And you would think the places he spent time in, in in the play, right there in Galilee, would be the most receptive. And yet they were not. (laughs) You ever have to tell a young child, maybe a child, a grandchild, multiple times not to do something, and they do it anyway? Don't they kind of deserve the whooping that you're going to give them? However you choose to define that word. Well, in the same way, you know, we have to take into account it's the same thing. Jesus had warned these cities more than anywhere else with his presence to turn, to repent, to respond to the gospel, and they would not. They deserve whatever greater judgment there would be here. And granted, we aren't given great details, but we know from texts like this that there will be degrees of judgment on the other side of eternity. And you will be judged on how well you knew the truth, how much you have heard the truth, and yet still rejected it. Hopefully not for any of us here, but that will be true for many on that day. Now, some say, oh, well, maybe we should stop preaching the gospel so that it won't be so bad for others. And of course not. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, Because without the light of the gospel, we are all perishing. We're all, you know, lost without Christ. And Jesus has not given us the option of silence. He's the one who said, you know, do you take a a lamp and hide it under a bushel? No. Gonna let that light shine before the whole world so that they will see and know the good news. Because that's what we're called to do. We're shared to call, we're called to share the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to anyone who's willing to hear, trusting that God will be fair and trusting that those who will come to him will come and obtain salvation in his name. It's called good news for a reason, guys. And furthermore, with with that in mind, now that we've kind of unpacked this, the United States really can be named among these nations, can't it? Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, South Amboy, perhaps? I mean, we've had such a rich Christian heritage in this nation, even in this town. So many churches have been built. So, many, so much of our backbone and our cultural history is rooted in Judeo-Christian values and history. And even now, we got like, what, four Christian radio stations that reach this city? Something like that? But yet, have we repented? Has this area as a whole responded 
to the gospel? I think we all intuitively know the answer. We ought to be in prayer for not just our nation, but our own backyard in that response. But what about those who do receive Jesus? What about those who do come to him? As Jesus says, a beautiful prayer beginning in verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. You know, we're we're coming off of a lot of doom and gloom, admittedly, for the last couple of chapters. A lot of talk of persecution, talk of um, rejection. And it's pretty amazing to see Jesus' thoughts towards his saints and towards his relation with his father compared to with those who would reject him and persecute the church. You know, all of this language about the wise and understanding missing this and children receiving it, 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 it paints an interesting picture. It, it, it's similar to 1 Corinthians 1.18, where Paul says the word or the message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You know, to those of us who know and love the Lord, he is like this beautiful treasure above all else to be enjoyed and cherished. But to those who do not yet know him, maybe our friends, maybe our family members, maybe our co-workers, it is, it is, it's like something they can't comprehend. It's they miss it as if it has been hidden from them. They just can't see it. No matter how many times you explain it to them, they just can't see it the way that you do. Have you ever experienced that? I know I have. And it's because to a degree it has been hidden from them. And truly it was God's will to do so, as the text says, as God is glorified by the wise, the learned, the understanding, rejecting these things, but yet Simple people like myself come to him and believe in him. And he is glorified by these truths. He continues in verse 27, saying, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And that... That covers so much. When, when Jesus says, all things have been handed to, over to me by my Father, it ought to remind us of that verse in Matthew 28 that says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, he goes on to say. Now just a reminder that all authority, all dominion, all power belong to our Savior Jesus. There is no higher authority. There is no higher court than his. He is the final authority on all things. We forget that sometimes. Our culture certainly has, exalting all kinds of things of higher authority than God and his word. But yet here, all authority is given to Jesus. And the rest of this verse highlights the relationship between the Father and the Son, which we must admit is unique. It's... 
We don't see um, something comparable to it on this side of eternity. So it can be hard to understand. The wise and the learned misunderstood him. This chapter even begins with John the Baptist misunderstanding some of the prophecies of the Messiah. How much more so the complicated doctrine of the Trinity, let's be honest. But keep in mind, um, but, but well, it, it says here that tr- the Father, though, truly knows the Son, and the Son truly knows the Father. And those whom the Son chooses, he reveals the Father to them. Keep in mind, Jesus has revealed who the Father is to us. It's not a mystery anymore. John 14, 9, Jesus says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So with that in mind, you want to understand what the Father is like. What what his character is like, how he would treat people like you or like me, we don't have to wonder. We can look to Jesus for the answer of that question. If you know Jesus, you know the Father. And don't get me wrong, they're not the same. But Jesus doesn't have a radically different character than God the Father does. They're, in that sense, the same in their character, their love, their heart towards people like us. In fact, the only way to understand the Father is through Jesus. That's what 1 John 2.23 says. It says, no one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. John 14.6, Jesus speaking again, nobody comes to the Father except through me. Starting to see the pattern there? You can't say you know or you understand or you love the Father unless you have the Son, unless you have Jesus Christ in your life. And once you know him, you know the Father also in a beautiful way. You know, people want to say these days, and you see this on all kinds of articles online and things on the History Channel, that all Abrahamic religions are basically the same. The Muslims, the Jews, the Christians, we're all basically the same. We all worship the Father. But according to this scripture, we really don't, do we? Not once we look at it from this perspective. The Jews and the Muslims, we love them as people, but they don't have the Son. And if you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father either. And have you ever noticed how different their understanding of God the Father is than we do? I mean, if you start to unpack some of their theology of who God is, you end up with very different answers to who he is, what he's like, what his core character is. And it's because they have not had the Son reveal him to us like Jesus has. Now, let me take a step back before we go forward. Don't get me wrong on this. We love our Jewish and Muslim neighbors. We love these people. We respect their beliefs. We can even work together with them on social issues within our community. That's a good thing to do. 
And most of them, the vast majority of those people, are people you want to have as your literal neighbors. Very kind and wonderful family people. But what I'm saying is we can't hold hands with them and sing kumbaya together as if we're all the same. Because if we're honest, we're not at the end of the day. That's why we can't do these interfaith meetings that are becoming, you know, popular and talked about a lot. You know, I can do a community service project with any of them at the drop of a hat. But to worship together and pretend that we're all the same, all equally glorifying God is something we can't do in truth. That's a step too far. And just just to add some more clarity so I don't get misquoted on this, I'll do an interdenominational service any day of the week. I welcome to worship with our Lutheran brothers and sisters, our Methodist brothers and sisters in Christ, the Baptists, the non-denominationals. I welcome community and worship together like that. We definitely have our differences between them, but it's not worth breaking fellowship over. And, you know, we had a few services like that last year, and we have high hopes for the remainder of this year and moving forward. But um, we'll see what the Lord has in store. Kind of went off on a tangent there, but so, so to tie these thoughts together, yes, to a degree, God has hidden these truths from the wise and the understanding of this world, but he has revealed it In his son. That's what I want us to hear this morning from his word. And all who receive him. He has given the right to become children of God. And has revealed the father to as well. Because the son is not hidden away in a monastery somewhere. The truths about the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. It's not as if that has been hidden away and made inaccessible. It's kind of in the best-selling book of all time. God has made himself available to be revealed to those who seek him, to those who are drawn to him by the Father. And in fact, he invites all to come with him. You, you see this in verse 28, where Jesus says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. A subtle reminder there by saying, come to me, come to me, that Jesus is not, or salvation rather, is not found in a building. It's not found in a tradition. God forbid it's found in a denomination. It's found in a person. It's found in Jesus Christ. And I say that because, you know, you all made it here on a Sunday morning. That's great. That's good news. We have a religion. You are here on a Sunday morning. That's great. But do you have Jesus on Monday morning? That's the question. That's the question that should haunt us in a good way and encourage us to examine our hearts. Because nothing else offers the rest that Jesus Christ offers you and me this morning. Now, other religions just offer you something else to labor in. Let's talk about those uh, Muslim brothers and sisters we were talking about. 
You know, they strive to have more good deeds than bad deeds when they pass away because they believe that's how they will be judged. Good deeds on this side, bad deeds on this side. And the one that outweighs the other sends them one direction or the other in their minds. And the worst thing about it is if you're in a system like that, you never know how you're doing. I'm so glad Christianity doesn't offer that because you would have no peace. How do you know you have more good works than bad? I mean, some of us had pretty bad upbringing. Some of us have made major mistakes. At one point is the tipping point to, over, to, to do better than worse. There's not exactly an interdimensional scoreboard telling you how you're doing. And it's the same, and it's, I'm not just picking on them. It's the same with Eastern religions. Um, if you ever talk to uh, somebody of the Hindu faith or a, a Buddhist faith, they spend their whole life striving to pay off their karma debt or striving to achieve nirvana, respectively. And again, never knowing how they're doing. You never have peace because it's always work and it's always worry and you're just hoping to your dying day that you've done enough. That's weighty, that's heavy, that's, that's hard on the heart. That's not rest. That's, that's anxiety producing if nothing else is. And frankly, even our Catholic neighbors up the street teach that your work is not over. Yeah, you coming to faith and believing in God and maybe your baptism and taking the sacraments, that got you off on a good start. But now it's your job to finish what Christ has finished. You have to do works of love to finish what Christ has started. They don't like me pointing that out, but that's what their system teaches. It's true. But that's not what I see in the Bible. The only, only the biblical Jesus offers you true rest from your labors. Here's another quick scripture for you. Philippians 1 verse 6. Listen to the confidence that Paul writes with. I am sure of this. Coming right out of the gate nice and strong. I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? It's Jesus who began the good work in you. And it is Jesus who will complete the good work in you. It is Jesus who will complete and both begin and complete your salvation. That is why on the cross Jesus can say, what, what did he say? It is finished. All those other groups I just told you about can't say that. Only in Christ can you say with confidence, it is finished, that there's no more work for me because Christ's work was sufficient. It's not me. It's not us. It's not our tradition that is so perfect. But it was Christ whose work was perfect and complete who imputed that completed work to us. Which is what allows Jesus to so beautifully conclude in verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Before we bring this to a conclusion, we have to ask a simple question. What's a yoke? Well, surely we're not talking about eggs, but what are we talking about here? (laughs) Jesus is not talking about making breakfast. A yoke was a harness that a farmer would put around one of his farm animals to allow him to pull a heavy load behind them. You you would yoke them to, to each other, and then you would, it was this wooden harness you would put like a couple of different animals with, and then they would plow the fields with this yoked harness around them. And Jesus masterfully uses this as a multifaceted example. Jesus, first and foremost, is saying, fasten yourself to me. Take my yoke upon you. Fasten yourself to me. And the burden I place upon you will not be a heavy one. I love this. There's so much to be said about this. I wish I had an hour to unpack this for you guys. But furthermore, the load that I place on you is one you'll want to carry. Because let's face it, the things Jesus asks us to leave behind, once we know who he is, we're going to want to leave behind anyway. And the things that, you know, the things that he asks us to do, Once you know him, you're going to want to do them anyway. Not out of some holy obligation, but because out of a desire to please him. That's why we do that. And unlike other yokes of other religions that we just got done comparing, Jesus will carry your load for you. How beautiful is that? It was Jesus that carried your cross. It was Jesus who carried your sin, your guilt, and your shame so that you don't have to, so that we can be free. So even when he does ask in return, take up your cross and follow me, even that is dust on the scale of comparison compared to what he has already carried for us. It is such an uneven trade-off. It is glorious for us. So with that in mind, with this clear understanding of what the gospel is and is not, if your Christianity is heavy and burdensome, it's time to re-examine the load that you're carrying. Because there's no doubt in my mind, if that's true, then you are carrying things you were never meant to carry. If your Christianity can be described as bondage rather than freedom, you have the wrong Jesus. If your Christianity is burdensome instead of joyful, you have the wrong Jesus. Because my Jesus, the Jesus found in Scripture, has set me free of these things. He has given me joy He has given me peace. He has allowed me to rest in his completed work. And I get to enjoy that every day of my life. Praise him for that truth. So look, we occasionally we get burdened in this world. Occasionally we look around and we're burdened by certain seasons that we're going through. Family situations, work situations, uh, 
you know what takes place in your home. But when I look to Christ, I don't feel burdens. When I think of worshiping my Savior and pleasing Him, I don't think work. I think peace. I think rest. That is what He offers each one of us today. Not just for the newcomers, first professing to believe, but He offers each of that to us who have been maybe saints for many years, who have forgotten these truths and have allowed ourselves to be burdened with things we were never meant to be burdened with. Jesus invites us to cast those cares upon Him, that He will take our anxieties, He will take our worries, He will take our fears. And we can find rest for our souls in him. Come to that Jesus today and leave your burdens behind. Thanks be to God.